I think I have at least two, maybe three new books on the book of Revelation in my possession since I last saw you. And I'd just like to recommend this one. I think is a is a quite a quite a nice book by J. Nelson Crabill. He has he has done a lot of studying on Roman imperial reality and economic and systems of economic oppression. So his book Apocalypse and Allegiance, Worship, Politics, and Devotion in the Book of Revelation, is a uh, is a very it's a very competent book. He thinks that the book of Revelation is primarily about Roman imperial realities. He doesn't think that the book of Revelation is primarily prophetic, but he thinks that the book of Revelation takes a position on certain values. And when you have understood those values, you can apply those values to other realities that might be analogous. So I think the book is quite useful. Uh, uh, Krabel is a Mennonite. And the Mennonite contribution to the interpretation of the book of Revelation, I think, is quite formidable. So I would say this book is not... Is is uh, is a worthwhile book. Uh, this other one is a, is more of a dubious one, and don't rush to buy it. <laughs> but I couldn't resist it. A, a is for Armageddon. <laughs> <laughs> this this book is written by someone who is taking a, a sort of tongue-in-cheek approach to the subject of the end of the end of the world. He thinks that you can go through the whole alphabet. A is for Armageddon, but the alphabet has many letters. And, and there are a, a almost innumerable scenarios by which the world could come to an end. He thinks he, uh, each letter here stands for something that could end the world. And he is doing it in a somewhat... This is a, uh, it's not an ordinary book, you know, you see. <laughs> you see uh, all kinds of... Here, here there is some uh, fuse that has been lit here. This is... Uh, anyway, there are all kinds of scenarios here that are sort of world-ending scenarios. <coughs> A is for Armageddon. <laughs> Excuse me? The author of this book is Richard Horn. And I think he is the person who has also written the book uh, 101 Things to Do Before You Die. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so this is not written by an expert, maybe on, on uh, certainly not an expert on the Bible, but, but uh, he, uh, he, he got very good reviews in the newspaper, in the, in the LA Times Review of Books. So I bought it to my wife's great dismay. <laughs> one, mo- <coughs> one more book to cart around. Okay, we are in Revelation 19. And <coughs> Revelation 19 uh, has for me personally been a, a, a very positive uh, experience. I, I came into this chapter with not the greatest of expectations, but it has in fact, uh, reading it uh, uh, over and over now, has persuaded me that this is a very important chapter in terms of the whole uh, uh, picture and, and message of the book of Revelation. So, so let's just read, uh, Revel- uh, we have done uh, the, Rev- the first 10 verses of Revelation 19 already. We're starting in verse 11, and I just want to read a portion of it just to get us started. Revelation 19:11 says what? 
then I saw heaven opened. And this, of course, is an internal echo in the book of Revelation because in the, in the most important, the sort of uh, the biggest transition in the book in, uh, from chapter 3 to chapter 4, uh, uh, in verse 4-1, you see the same sort of image. After this I looked and there stood in heaven, or there in heaven a door stood uh, open. So you cannot... You cannot or we cannot fail to see uh, a similarity there, or, or do I, uh, are you with me that that is similar? Uh, it's the only time when, when there is, uh, when, the, when uh, uh, Revelation says that, that heaven was opened. It's not the only time that, that Revelation says that something was opened. Revelation says that over and over and over, but it's the, it's the, uh, uh, the sort of parallelism there. And why does he need to say it again? He has said it already. I saw heaven opened. I saw in, in Revelation 4.1. So in Revelation 19.11, he's just reminding us that he still is seeing heaven opened. Uh, the scenes he has been describing since he was taken up to heaven to see, you know, look into the heavenly council uh, uh, has all happened in the sort of scenario, within that scenario of an open heaven. I think I mentioned to you before that one of the most influential books on the subject of this type of literature has the title The Open Heaven, written by Christopher Rowland, who is a professor at Cambridge, The Open Heaven, where he discusses revelation and similar literature as literature that that is revelatory in the sense that you get to see heavenly realities, sort of unseen realities. But I just wanted to highlight that because uh, <clears throat> we tried to make the case last time, and I wish to repeat it this time, that there is a close correlation between Revelation 4 and 5, between the revelatory scene in Revelation 4 and 5 and the, the message we get in Revelation 19. So... Uh, uh, well, <clears throat> let's do a few more things that are open in the book of Revelation, because if you do a search on the word open, or anoigo, which is the Greek word, then what else is open in the book of Revelation? <laughs> well, in Revelation, uh, in, the, in the sequence on the seven churches, there is an open uh, door, even there too. It doesn't say that it is the open door to, to heaven, but there is an open door in the message to the uh, church in Philadelphia. I have set before you an open door that no man can close. And then in Revelation 11, uh, the temple in heaven is open. In Revelation 15, again, the temple in heaven is open. And in the Revelation Six, of course, five or six, five, you have the sealed scroll that gets opened. He unseals the scroll. In Revelation 20, there is a book that was opened. This is the book where the judgment is taking place. So do, what do you have? You have an open heaven. You have an, uh, one or two open books. You have an open temple. You have a lot of openness to substantiate, I think, the notion that the book of Revelation and the God of the book of Revelation believes in openness, that 
the alternative title that I will suggest for this book, I have suggested it for this book, is that this is a book of transparency, that the God of the book of Revelation believes in transparency. His policy is a policy of transparency, a revelatory policy, you might say. So the, the word open is not a bad word in a, in a time or for all, our, or all time, all of human history that has thrived on opposite things, opposite ideologies, ideologies of secrecy, ideology of denial of access. This is not such an ideology. This is, a, this is an ideology of openness and access, isn't it? So <clears throat> that too fits our picture here. But my primary goal of putting these texts up like this was to show the, uh, the relationship between chapter 19 and chapters 4 and 5. So, <clears throat> we illustrated it this way last time, and I just want to repeat, uh, put that image up again, that these two chapters, or, the, or the, the opening of the seven seals, that sequence in the beginning of the book of Revelation, and Revelation 19, in some ways relate to each other as bookends of the story that you, you sort of come full circle when you come to chapter 19. And, and I will try to, to uh, or I will propose uh, some, uh, uh, some uh, reasons why that could be, could be helpful. Okay, now let's read, read the text. Uh, uh, and I'm just going to uh, do f uh, six verses this morning from Revelation 19. I was sure we were going to do Revelation in one setting, uh, Revelation 19 in one session. Then I was sure we would do, do it in two. And now I am sure we will do it in three. And we will do it in three. <laughs> we'll do it one today, and then next time I will do the last part of Revelation 19. Uh, but we'll just do six verses today. And those are the descriptions of the rider on the white horse. So if one of you would be so kind to read Revelation verse 19, 11 to 13. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name inscribed that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, wearing fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Okay, thank you. Okay, now we will return and do this in detail. First, we will do, we will do it in three, three, on three levels, as the text is doing on three levels. There are three levels in the text. There is the level of description, question of, you know, sort of external features. Then there is the question of the name, the name of the rider on the horse. And then it is, there is a, a, an aspect on the actions or the tasks of the rider on the horse. So three things, description, name, and tasks, actions. So uh, on the question of description, we see that his eyes are like a flaming fire, he has many diadems on his head. He wears a robe dipped in blood. He has a sharp sword that issues from his mouth. And 
and I would like to ask, uh, or <coughs> we will not do each of those images in, this, in the same depth. We will do the image that is most challenging and most important for the interpretation. That is the image of the robe that is dipped in blood. In whose blood is his robe dipped? dipped? His own or the blood of his opponents? That's my question. And that's what I'm inviting you to, to start thinking about as the first one. So you see all these other uh, images. His eyes like a fiery flame. That's imagery with which he has been described before. It is imagery from the book of Daniel. The, son of, the Danielic son of man looks like that. And the picture of Jesus in the first chapter of Revelation has those kinds of, uh, has the same kind of description. Uh, he has many diadems on his head. That's kind of self-explanatory. It doesn't pose much of a problem to interpretation, so I'm not going to spend much time on it. Uh, this sharp sword, we will return to that when we, comes to, when we come to the question of his actions, what he's actually doing. But the robe that is dipped in blood is a very important <coughs> image, and we need, to, we need to discuss that. I wonder if I had... Uh, yes, I, we ask that question too. Is the sword in his mouth a weapon of violence? We will. Uh, so those questions are kind of related to each other, but my primary uh, focus will be on the question of of the blood. He wears a robe dipped in blood. In whose blood is his robe dipped? His own or the blood of his enemies? Now, does that make any difference? To is that theologically important question? If it is one or the other, and and can we come to some agreement on that question, and and uh, and what do interpreters say about it? Because you will have your opinion, and and we will listen to some other uh, interpretations. Yes. <laughs> Why did you have to do that? <laughs> You're always throwing wrenches into. <laughs> of course, that is a legitimate question, and and. And is the, is, does the white horse in Revelation 19 have the same connotation, the same identity sort of structure as the white horse, the first of the horses in, in Revelation 6, the first of the seven seals? There was a rider. Uh, there was a white horse and there was a rider on it, right, that had a bow and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when we did Revelation <coughs> Revelation 6, we interpreted all the horses as horses of the same kind. And we, uh, we, we uh, uh, interpreted that as kind of a bad, sort of bad reality. And, and now the, the rider on the white horse in Revelation 19 represents a good reality, doesn't it? So uh, the question of whether the, the white horse in Revelation 6 and Revelation uh, 19 represents the same reality we interpreted earlier. I tried to make that case much earlier, that the white horse in Revelation 6 is probably not a good reality. And that's, that's disputed because the traditional Adventist interpretation is to make, make the white horse in Revelation 6 a good reality. I disagree with that interpretation. I think that inter interpretation is no longer sustainable. But, but, but that is not, uh, so uh, we, <coughs> if we're, we're not going to do, do a, an in-depth thing of the horses now, 
uh, I'll just remind people of that. And if you want to get my handout and review those things uh, again, uh, those who have not been been part of this, I will certainly. Uh, you just email me, and I will I will uh, share that with you. When I went to SPL, Society of Biblical Literature meetings in November. Someone uh, gave a presentation in the revelation session on the on the image of the white horse, and uh, I thought she did an excellent excellent interpretation, uh, and uh, she, and I wrote to her afterwards. I talked to her and then I, I wrote to her afterwards and asked her to share her paper with me, and she sent me her paper. She just sent me a, 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 in a draft form because she obviously intends to publish it, but. Uh, the image of white horses, see, the traditional view has been to say the color white is always God, it's always Jesus. And my answer to that is the color white is always Jesus, except when it isn't. <clears throat> because because it, is not, it is not an ironclad position. The four horses of Revelation 6 is an image taken from Zechariah, where there are also white horses, and the quality the qualitative parameters of those horses do not reside in their color. The red horse, the white horse, the you know other color horses are not are not uh, the qualitative parameters do not are not confined. It is not resolved by the by the image of the of or the color of the horse. And white horses in the in uh, in the antiquity there were lots of white horses. The conquerors, the emperors, the Parthians, the Roman emperors, they were always and often depicted riding on horse on horses. And the most prestigious horse you can ride on is the white horse. The, the white horse is a is a symbol of power, is a symbol of of of, of you know the of, of status you might say but I don't think I want to revisit that and do that whole thing over again I just want to remind you uh, because there is no ambiguity about the, uh, the character of the of the horse and the rider of the white horse on, on Revelation 19 Chris just for the sake of our new attendees what are the three most important principles we are using for the interpretation of reading Revelation, for interpretation of Revelation? The first principle is, no, is what? That you have to become a re-reader. You have to know the whole thing before you do the parts. So the, the policy or the method of re-readership is number one. Number two is what? That you have to look at the allusions to the Old Testament because the book of Revelation is full of, full of allusions to the Old Testament. And the third one, I've almost forgotten it myself. Please remind me, what was it? <laughs> that there is more than one side in this story. There are two sides in the story. There, are, there is not just one acting subject. There are two main acting subjects. So the notion of re-readership, knowing the whole and knowledge of the whole being helpful for, for knowledge of the parts, interpretations of the parts, the Old Testament, and then the, the cosmic conflict, or that there is more than one acting subject. So, uh, yes, are, are you worried here? Am I hearing you worried? What if it were the blood of his enemies? Would that be, would that be quite, uh, quite a, a blow to your, your theology? It did sound like love. <laughs> Well, 
<laughs> what do interpreters say? Now let's do the, then the Old Testament background text, which is one of the one Old Testament candidate text here that I should have given you a chance to to volunteer this, but I have already shown shown it, and you have my handout too to cheat, so you it won't won't work. So here is a question, one of the candidate texts, and a legitimate candidate text for this image is in Isaiah 63, verses 1 to 3. Who is this that comes from Edom, from Bozrah? What is Bozrah? It's just another name for Edom. It's just a synonym. And Edom is where, by the way? Who is this that comes from Edom? Esau. Okay, what's the country, what's the name of the country today? It's the country of Jordan. This is Petra. This is this, the, the civilization of Petra. And uh, I am one of the privileged people who have been to Petra. And my, was that an experience. It's an amazing place. So how many of you have been there? Some of you have been there. So well preserved. Just an amazing, amazing uh, the display of antiquity there. One of the most uh, impressive displays of, of, uh, of uh, antiquity, I think, anywhere in the world. Who is this that comes from Edom, from Buzra, in garments stained in crimson? Does this person have a red garment on? He has a garment that is stained, in crim- stained crimson. Who is this so splendidly robed, marching in his great might? That was the question, and the answer is what? It is I, announcing vindication, mighty to save. So does this sound, this sound like an important figure here? Is he up to something good? He's up to something good, isn't he? So question, and a sort of follow-up question then, a question about his robes. Why are your robes red and your garments like theirs? who tread the winepress. And to the unnerving answer, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their juice spattered on my garments and stained all my robes. Whose blood is on the garments of the figure in Isaiah 63. His own blood or the blood of the enemies? The blood of the enemies? Are you all sure about that? Don't like to admit it? <laughs> we should get the microphone here. So, so even if you were to say... Does this text seem in literal terms to say that the blood on the garment is the blood of the enemies? It says that in literal terms, doesn't it? So, but that is not necessarily closing the deal on what it means. You could have, you could have nuances, you could have shades, you could have uh, differences of what that means because there are all kinds of sort of cosmic warrior, there is all kinds of combat language in the Bible that does not necessarily mean, you know, that this is, you know, I, I killed them off, you know, I really socked it to them, you know, and, and, and that's it, you know, that, that kind of image. So, but 
there cannot be much doubt that the text is saying that this is the blood of the enemies on the garments of, the, of, of this, this figure. So what will we do next here? So the question, the question I would like to, uh, to sort of put thing, uh, this into perspective is, is this question. The slaughtered lamb in Revelation 5-6 is a victim of violence, isn't he? We did that in some detail, and we showed that the word for slaughtered is a, is a word that is not the word for sacrifice. It is the word for violence. So the slaughtered lamb in Revelation 5 is a victim of violence. There is clearly some identity between the lamb in Revelation 5 and the rider on the white horse in Revelation 19. So my, my question here then is, is the rider on the white horse not a victim but a perpetrator of violence. Is he, is he no longer, as uh, Charles, one of the most prestigious interpreters of the book of Revelation, is he no, the, the figure on the white horse is no longer the slain, but the slayer? That's the question. So, because, so you, could have, you could have two options here. You could have an option where the imagery of Revelation 19 assumes and reinforces the imagery of Revelation 5. Or you could have the option that the image in Revelation 19 changes or adds to or complements the image in Revelation 5. So let me put those words. Words uh, that you could have (coughs) the option of slain and you could have the option of slain and slayer. Those are the two options. Now, Revelation 5, Jesus is slain only. There is no slayer in Revelation 5. There is only a slaughtered lamb, slain lamb. In Revelation uh, 19, you have that possibility. So either, you know, this could be 5 plus 19. This could be 5 plus 19. And then Revelation 19, adding the prospect that that the, that, that the figure of Jesus in Revelation is not only slain, but also slayer. Is that, that what we're working on? That's what we're, what we're working on. But the, the word that is used in Isaiah 63, I think it's an excellent translation in, in, in the NRSV, on the, using the word vindication. Because the vindication word, rather than using vengeance as the word, because vindication has a connotation of of something that is sort of made right without, uh, it doesn't, uh, certainly, it could have used the word vengeance, but it doesn't, it doesn't use that. Uh, we, we'll, we'll, we, we need to do a little more footwork in text here, and then we'll talk some more. Because, well, we, we have had a certain trend in our interpretation of Revelation up to this point where that has been part of it, but now we could be, we could be facing a text that could, could actually defeat that that interpretation, and you have to face that possibility that that we may have we may have uh, leaned in a certain direction, and now we've come. Now we are finding that this didn't work, and we need to to redo the whole thing, uh, possibly. So, shall we do? Uh, uh, did you want to say more there? Okay, let's <clears throat> let's just do this quotation from John Collins. I have shared this with you before. But John Collins is, is, a, is a professor at Yale University. 
I have told you before also that his wife, Adela Yarbrough Collins, is one of the foremost experts on the book of Revelation. She's just published a formidable commentary on the Gospel of Mark. She's, these are, this is one of the powerhouses in, in uh, theology in North America. Both of them are teaching at Yale. And Joel Collins is an expert on apocalyptic literature. Here is what he says about the book of Revelation. The theology of the book of Revelation is like this. Jesus did not destroy the wicked in his earthly life, but he would return with supernatural power to complete the task. The figure of the earthly Jesus in the Gospels is a figure who is, who is a sort of kind of a, an ironic figure. He is not violent. You know, he, uh, in, in, in the Gospel story, his blood is shed. There is no... No, no one else's blood is shed at the hand of Jesus in the Gospels. Is that, is that fair to say? So that picture of Jesus is complemented by the apocalyptic Jesus of Revelation, where Jesus is now not only slain, but also slayer. That's what John Collins is saying. And John Collins is not a nobody, so you have to take that seriously. Jesus is going to return with supernatural power, well, I forgot to do something. I have to go back and finish the task. And finishing the task is to, to then show his violent side. In the book of wisdom, also known as the wisdom of Solomon, the book of wisdom is a, an apocryphal book. It, uh, so you find it in, uh, uh, in, of course it is acknowledged as, as scripture in, in Roman Catholic Bibles, in, in Protestant Bibles, such as uh, the R, uh, RSV and RSV and, and the New English Bible, it is, it, it is singled out as apocryphal. But this was scripture, this was literature that had some prestige at the time of Jesus. So what does wisdom say? Thy all-powerful word, pantodynamos, su logos, Thy all-powerful word leaped from heaven, from the royal throne, into the midst of the land that was doomed. A stern warrior carrying the sharp sword of thy authentic command, and stood and filled all things with death, and torched heaven while standing on earth. Does this sound like, uh, you know, what, who is this figure? Well, this is a messianic figure, and this is one of the sources that shapes the messianic interpretation prior to the coming of Jesus. See that? That's the role of this kind of literature. It's old literature. The earliest dating of it is 75 BC. The latest dating is 40 AD. But the sentiment of this piece of literature is, is sentiment that reflects the messianic expectation at the time of Jesus as a figure of violence. That's going to be our Messiah. That's what he's going to do. You see what, what, what is going on here? How you, need to inter- how you need to see that? What role this text plays? Now here is another... Any questions or comments on that text? Here is another... Yes, please. So what sort of textual resources did they have, including the text in Isaiah 63? where the blood is, blood is going to be the blood of the enemies. What sort of textual resources do you have with which to 
that matches up with the figure of Jesus, the way he comes. And, and sort of, you know, is there some sort of cognitive discrepancy? Is there some sort of tension between the expectation and the reality that comes? You know, because, and, and then you, 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 that would sort of feed back into how you read this, these texts now that, that you have an actual Jesus as, as, as sort of evidence with which to, to, do the, to get this right. Well, here is the Targums. What are the Targums? <clears throat> the Targums are, they are very free translations of the Hebrew Bible into Aramaic. Uh, two, three, four hundred years before the time of Jesus, the Jewish communities in the, in, even in Palestine, no longer knew how to talk Hebrew. So they had to change the language. They had to learn Aramaic. And, and translations were made of the Bible into Aramaic. And in Alexandria and Egypt, translation of the Bible was made into, into Greek. So the first sort of full-scale official translation of the Bible was probably a translation into Greek, the Septuagint. But translational projects, quite loosely structured translational projects, so the Bible into, Arama- into Aramaic, were ongoing within Palestine from about 100, 200 years B.C. And the Targums are those Aramaic translations. And they are... They are embellished translations. They are kind of, kind of uh, uh, paraphrases. They're more than paraphrases, too. They are quite, quite uh, loose in their interpretations. But here is another text that may have been sort of circulating at this time and, and shaping the messianic expectations at the time of Jesus. He girds his loins and goes out to battle against those who hate him. And he kills kings and rulers, and reddens the mountains from the blood of their slain. And he whitens his cloak with the fat of the mighty ones. His garments are rolling in blood. So, the wisdom, the book of wisdom, the wisdom of Solomon, the Aramaic Targums, what sort of figure are they putting before before you? What sort of figure are they projecting on the screen? They are, there is a divine warrior, there is a messianic warrior, and the blood that is shed is whose blood? The, so, the short version of this is that the messianic expectation at the time of Jesus was completely, completely, emphatically unprepared for the possibility that it would be his blood. It was not going to be his blood. And Saul, Saul who stood there when they stoned Stephen in the book of Acts, and they put their garments at the foot of a young man called Saul, and Saul consented in the the stoning of Stephen. What offended Saul, what offended this foremost foremost, uh, evangelist of Jesus, what offended him so much was that the Jewish Messiah was said to have been a victim of violence rather than the one who fixed it, rather than the one who put things in in, in its place. Can you see that? The messianic expectation at the time of Jesus coming into the world was completely, completely unprepared for the possibility that he would be the one whose blood would be shed. 
Now maybe there is a one and two. Maybe there was a sort of one-two punch planned for this. First he would shed his blood. Then he would shed their blood. That's a possibility. But that first possibility that he would shed his blood was not on the map at all in the messianic expectation. And the text that would sort of, you know, sort of background that text uh, or background that expectation would be Isaiah 63, along with wisdom, along with the Targums, along with a host of things that looked to Jesus as being a sort of military figure, national uh, liberator, you know, whatnot. You see, you've gone over this many times before, and you know this, but but it's not necessarily it's not necessarily a done deal even to us because the Jesus of our religions might still be a Jesus whose whose character uh, might you know have undergone some transformation uh, under the influence of Christian hegemony for you know some 15 Hundred years, so that possibility is there that there might be an interpretive bias on our parts too. Uh, now, going on here, uh, so here is another candidate text that, from my point of view, would be a better candidate text or a complementary candidate text. It's true that the, the, the figure in Isaiah 63 has his robe sprinkled with blood, but the figure in Revelation 19 does not have his robe sprinkled with blood. He has his robe done what? Dipped in blood. And there is not, the, 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 the word that is used in Isaiah 63 does not accommodate that reality fully. So I want a robe dipped in blood. So I went shopping in the Old Testament to find a robe dipped in blood, and surely I was not disappointed. Let's read it for us. Then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They had a long robe with sleeves taken to their father, and they said, This we have found. See now whether it is your son's robe or not. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. A wild animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Now, does this, does this you know, close the deal? It doesn't. It does not close the deal. But it is a legitimate candidate text for the notion of a robe dipped in blood. It opens up for another possibility. And that, that would, if you go with this text as your text, as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a, a text to complement the, the image in, in Isaiah, then chapter 19, the writer whose robe is dipped in blood, will reinforce the message of chapter 5 of the slaughtered lamb. You see what, I, what, is, what, is, what that would do then. So it would not, not complement the image. It would reinforce that image that our, our rider, the rider on the white horse, is still in his primary identity. In his primary identity, his essential identity, he is still a victim of violence. You see what I'm saying? That would, if the, robe, if the robe dipped in blood is that kind of robe. Is Joseph a victim of violence? Is, the victim, is, is Joseph victimhood a primary feature of this story? Of course it is. And, and a wild animal has devoured him. It is my son's robe. A wild animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And so was Jesus. 
you know, in that sense. So that would be a reinforcing image. Yes, please. Now, we need to get to one more of the, of the specifics here. <coughs> and I do not propose to close the, the deal on every, on every possibility here, because the, now, now you will have to make your choices, and, and, and there are choices to be made here. Uh, it isn't like I will prove any, any specific alternative beyond a shadow of a doubt. Here is from uh, A.T. Hansen's book, The Wrath of the Lamb, which I think is an extremely competent uh, and, and still the standard, still the go-to book uh, uh, for the image of the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb in the New Testament. And this is what he says. I am not 100% with him on, on, on everything here, but, but let's read it. In the difference between Yahweh's garments being sprinkled with blood and Christ's robe being dipped in blood lies all the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So what is my, differ- my ob- objection to that is that I do not think that, that you should put that sort of polarity there is too strongly stated. But there is a huge difference then between the notion of, of uh, or, or, or what he wants to commit to is the notion of Christ's robe being dipped in blood and that blood being his own. The difference between the conception of God judging his enemies by shedding their blood and the conception of his judging them by shedding his blood for them. That's the, that's the difference. So you might want to, to look at that book. It is out of print, but you could probably get a used copy in, in, on Amazon. Here is Ian Boxall in his book on Revelation. There are, there are trends, trends in, in national trends when it comes to how these uh, images are interpreted. And Ian Boxall's interpretation follows a previous book by a British theologian in the 60s. Almost certainly. Now, only almost certainly. Note the caveat here. Almost certainly it is his own blood. That of the slaughtered lamb. This is then a vision of the Christ who conquers not by killing his enemies, but by allowing himself to be killed and who invites his followers to do the same. And is there, is there imagery in Revelation to sort of sustain that kind of trajectory for what, what is going on here? Revelation twelve eleven says what? They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word they witnessed. Does Revelation twelve eleven say that? Now you are re-readers, and it's time for us to know some text by heart. You know, they have conquered him how? By the blood of the Lamb. Was that the blood he shed, or was it the blood he shed his own blood? She, clearly it is his own blood. Revelation 13.10. If anyone is to go into captivity, in captiv- into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he will be slain. So that's still consistent theology. Revelation 14.4. These are they who follow the Lamb, Wherever he goes, where does he go? Clearly, the notion there is that the lamb goes into places where you rather not go, that the notion of following the lamb in the, sac- in the sort of path of self-sacrifice is, 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 is part of that. Revelation doesn't finish. It does not offer to the reader clinching arguments. It doesn't give you that's the only interpretation. Now, do I think that there is 
only one interpretation. Do I want to say almost certainly or do I want to say certainly? For myself, I will not say almost certainly. For myself, I will say certainly. And then I will uh, sort of embolden my commitment there by saying that the book of Revelation, its, its sort of communicative strategy is not to prove things without beyond a shadow of a doubt. It is to do this. Let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That the correct interpretation ultimately has to be finished on the, on the part of the interpreter. It is not only the speaker that determines the, the, the end game. It is also the hearer. It puts responsibility on you and me to read it right. Almost certainly, or certainly, depends on how you and I decide to hear these texts. Now, the name and identity. Faithful and true, a name inscribed which he alone knows, the word of God and the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It's all about the name and identity of the figure of the rider on the white horse. And we, uh, we need to do a little on that. What does it mean? And what does it mean to have a name which he alone knows? What does it mean to have a name which he alone knows? He has a name inscribed on his loins and on his side which he alone knows. Now that is a a, a, a uh, challenging, challenging uh, thought, isn't it? <clears throat> so I would invite you to participate in, 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 uh, in that. Let's see what comes next here. Yes, <clears throat> you have a sort of reinforcing text in Revelation 2.17. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone, and on the white stone is written a new name which no one knows except the one who receives it. So there is on the part of the giver of names, he has a name that nobody knows. And the receiver of the name, he also has a name that nobody knows but the one who receives it. The book of Revelation is really up to, to intriguing things, isn't it? In, in, by, by putting this kind of imagery before us. I will submit, I will sort of proposed that it would be unbearable if the conclusion was that the name that nobody knows is a name we will never know. That would be an unbearable prospect. I wrote the word unbearability of the unknown name, but then I changed it. The unbearable prospect of the unknown name. Do you think that is, is that the end game? He has a name that nobody knows and we will never know it. Is that, is that what the book of Revelation is up to? All the open books, all the open heaven, all the open temples, notwithstanding, the name is, is, you know, eluded us. He has a name that nobody knows but himself. What is the meaning of that? How do you do that? Let's do it. Textual uh, aspects here. Revelation 14.1 says what? I saw... The Lamb standing on Mount, Mount Zion with the 144,000. And what, what is the description of the 144,000? They had his name and their father's name written on their foreheads. So does that suggest that the name is known now? 
Does, is that a text that suggests that the name, that knowledge of the name has in some way been actualized? You're reluctant to say that. I wouldn't be reluctant to say that. I would say the book of Revelation cannot mean that we will not know the name. Because the book of Revelation must be up to precisely that, to give knowledge of the name. So there must be some other meaning. Revelation 22, 4 says what? Somebody says this is the most wonderful text in the whole Bible. Revelation 22, 4 says what? They shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. So in order for that to happen, then the name must be known. John 17, 6 says what? I have made your name known. I have revealed your name. I finished it. I have finished it. It is a finished revelation of the name of God in the Gospel of John. And I, I am of those readers of Revelation that thinks that there is a lot of Johannine, Gospel of John type of territory in the book of Revelation, and this would be one, one such aspect. Then here is my suggestions, and we are done out of time. The name that no one knows is a pre-revelation reality. It is a, not, a name not known in the absence of revelation. That's my proposition. So it's looking at that from a pre-revelation, pre-revelatory reality. His name is not known. It was, there were all kinds of theories about what Jesus is like. There were all kinds of theories about what God was like. The theories were wrong. The theories were wrong. Only revelation could make that right. And then I, I improved my sentence, second sentence this morning, and this is what I'm proposing. The name that no one knows is, in the perspective of the Gospel of John and Revelation, a name that, by, that people think they know, only to be confounded by the revealed reality. That would, would fit the, the perspective that there is. And, and, and surely, again, just taking this down to essentials, surely the most counterintuitive aspect of God, of Jesus, of the Messiah, the most counterintuitive thing you could say about a figure like the Almighty God is that he would be, and I apologize for, that, for, the, for the terminology here, the most, most counterintuitive thing you could say about this figure would be that he would be a victim of violence and that he would win by losing. That would be certainly you know, that, that would be part of the, of the divine name, would certainly be something that nobody had expected and no one had known. But we're out of time, and I hope to see you a week from now. Thank you for coming. <laughs>